0: welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast. Today's episode is going to be completely different from our normal episodes, and the, the absolute truth is that I was originally intending for this to be a rerun. I had first one issue, and then another, and then a third and fourth got added on, and each one of them was like a little bit of a good reason why maybe I should take the show off. And then as they began to pile up, I thought, okay, I basically don't have a choice. I need to take today's show off. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll just put out a rerun episode as I normally would. But today uh, I have something different because it turns out that Bernie Sanders decided to give a major speech about saving democracy. And I thought, well, okay, I guess that's what today's show is going to be about. And then in addition Whether you've heard the speech or not, you should definitely not miss what comes after it because I have brand new voicemails, continuing conversations that we have been having, and then one of those voicemails spurred me to add a totally new bonus clip, which I normally wouldn't have had time for except for today's episode is so strange that it turns out I have time for it. So all of that is coming first, Bernie Sanders speech, if you haven't heard it. Please check it out. If you have heard it, then you can skip past and check out our brand new voicemails and a brand new bonus clip available to everyone, not just for the members where I thought it was going to end up uh, being stuck. But no, everyone gets it because it's Bernie Sanders day. Free clips for everyone. So without any
1: further ado, Bernie Sanders. Let me thank all of you for... Being here this afternoon. Um, This country faces an unprecedented set of crises. We are struggling with a pandemic that has already cost us over 200,000 lives. We have an economy in which we have a grotesque level of income and wealth inequality, where the middle class today is being decimated, where millions of workers have lost their jobs, and half of our people continue to work paycheck to paycheck, many for starvation wages. We are living in the moment when climate change is ravaging this planet, leading to massive fires on the West Coast, drought and unprecedented levels of extreme weather disturbances all across the globe. We are the only major country on earth not to guarantee healthcare to all people as a human right, Over 90 million Americans are uninsured or underinsured, and we pay by far the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. All of these issues and others are enormously important and should be the issues that are being debated in this campaign. But today, I am not going to talk about any of them. What I am going to talk about is something that in my wildest dreams, I never thought I would be discussing. And that is the need to make certain that the president of the United States, if he loses this election, will abide by the will of the voters and leave office peacefully. What I will be discussing today is the danger that this country faces from a president who is a pathological liar, who has strong authoritarian tendencies, who neither understands nor respects our Constitution, and who is prepared to undermine American democracy in order to stay in power. With less than six weeks left to go in this campaign, it is my fervent hope that all Americans, Democrats, Republicans, independents, progressives, moderates, conservatives, come together to defend American democracy, our constitution, and the rule of law. We must ensure in this unprecedented moment in American history that this is an election that is free and fair, an election in which voters are not intimidated, an election in which all votes are counted, and an election in which the loser accepts the results. This is not just an election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. This is an election between Donald Trump and democracy, and democracy must win. The United States is the oldest continuous democracy in the modern world. We held elections in the middle of a civil war in 1864. We held free and fair elections during World War I, during the Great Depression, and during World War II. After all of those elections held in extremely difficult circumstances, the loser acknowledged defeat and the winner was inaugurated and took office. That is what the United States of America is all about. That is what democracy is all about. But today, under Donald Trump, we have a president who has little respect for our constitution, or the rule of law. Today, that peaceful transition of power, the bedrock of American democracy, is being threatened like never before. I am not in the habit of quoting former President Ronald Reagan, but I think something that he said in his first inaugural address makes the point about how important, how precious is this part of our heritage. And I quote, Ronald Reagan, the orderly transfer of authority as called for in the Constitution routinely takes place as it has for almost two centuries and few of us stop to think how unique we really are. In the eyes of many in the world, this every four-year ceremony we accept as normal is nothing less than a miracle, end of quote. Protecting this orderly transfer of authority, as President Reagan characterized it, this miracle is absolutely essential if we together, all of us, Republicans, Democrats, independents, want to keep faith with the American ideals we hold so dear and with the sacrifices that so many made in order to protect our democracy. And in that regard, I think it is terribly important that we actually listen to and take seriously what Donald Trump is saying. Several weeks ago, speaking at the Republican National Convention, Trump said, and I quote, the only way they can take this election away from us is if this is a rigged election, end of quote. What is remarkable about that statement is that he made it at a time when almost every national poll had him behind and when he was trailing in polls in most battleground states. Think about what that statement means. Think hard about what that statement means. What he is saying is that if he wins the election, that's great. But if he loses, it's rigged. Because the only way, the only way he can lose is if it's rigged. And if it's rigged, then he is not leaving office. Heads I win, tails you lose. In other words, in Trump's mind, there is no conceivable way that he should leave office. And just last night, just last night, Donald Trump went even further down the path of authoritarianism by becoming the first president in the history of this country to refuse to commit to a peaceful transition of power if he loses the election. When asked by a reporter in the White House briefing room, quote, win, win, lose, or draw in this election, will you commit here today for a peaceful transfer of power after the election, end quote. Trump responded, and I quote, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I have been complaining very strongly about the ballots. And the ballots are a disaster. We want to get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There will be a continuation, end of quote from Donald Trump. That is not his choice. That's for the American people to determine. Let us be very clear. There is nothing in our Constitution or in our laws that gives Donald Trump the privilege of deciding whether or not he will step aside if he loses. In the United States, the president does not determine who can or cannot vote and what ballots will be counted. That may be what his friend Putin does in Russia. It may be what is done in other authoritarian countries, but it is not and it will not be done in America This is a democracy. Now, I do understand that Donald Trump is a billionaire, or so he tells us. I do understand that he was born to a very wealthy family, and from his earliest days was able to get anything he wanted because his family was rich and his family was powerful. I do understand that when you're rich and you're powerful, you don't have to pay taxes like ordinary people. And that it's easy for you to avoid the military draft. I do understand that when you're rich and you're powerful, you can buy politicians and get hundreds of millions of dollars in corporate welfare for your real estate empire. But this I also understand. No matter how rich or powerful you may be, no matter how arrogant and narcissistic you may be, No matter how much you think you can get anything you want, let me make this clear to Donald Trump. Too many people have fought and died to defend American democracy, and you are not going to destroy it. The American people will not allow that to happen. Despite all of the evidence, Trump continues to be obsessed with the belief that there is massive voter fraud in this country. In 2017, after he won the presidency, Trump insisted that he would have won the popular vote, which he lost by three million votes, if, quote, millions of illegal votes had not been cast, end quote. There is absolutely no evidence of that being true. In fact, it is totally preposterous to believe that millions of votes or any significant number of votes at all were cast illegally. This is an assertion supported by no one, not Democratic officials, not Republican officials, no one. And yet that is what Trump said after he won. There have been numerous studies done on the issue of voter fraud in our country. They have all concluded essentially in the same way. Voter fraud in the United States of America is extremely rare. A study by Dartmouth University found no evidence of widespread voter fraud in the 2016 election. An article in the New York Times from December 2016 stated, and I quote, in an election in which more than 137 million Americans cast ballots Election and law enforcement officials in 26 states and the District of Columbia, Democratic leaning, Republican leaning, and in between, said that so far, they knew of no credible allegations of fraudulent voting. Officials in another eight states said they knew of only one allegation. In Georgia, where more than four million people cast ballots, officials said they had opened inquiries in 25 cases into, quote, suspicious voting or election-related activity. But in, end of quote, but inquiries to all 50 states, every one but Kansas responded, found no states that reported indications of widespread fraud. End of quote, New York Times. A report by the Brennan Center for Justice reviewed elections that had been meticulously studied for voter fraud and found incident rates between 0.0003% and 0.0025%. The report concluded that it is more likely that an American, quote, will be struck by lightning than that he will impersonate another voter at the polls, end quote. Even the Conservative Heritage Foundation, which maintains a database on election fraud, could only find 143 criminal convictions of mail-in voter fraud out of 250 million mail-in votes cast over the past 20 years, a rate of 000006 percent But you don't have to trust me on this issue. Benjamin Ginsburg, one of the leading Republican experts on election, a man who served as national counsel to the Bush-Cheney presidential campaign, a man who played a major role for the Republican Party in the 2000 Florida recount, and who co-chaired the bipartisan 2013 Presidential Commission on Election Administration, recently wrote in the Washington Post, and I quote, quote, the truth is that after decades of looking for illegal voting, there is no proof of widespread fraud. At most, there are isolated incidents by both Democrats and Republicans. Elections are not rigged," end of quote. Let me repeat from one of the Republican Party's leading experts on elections, quote, the truth is that after decades of looking for illegal voting, there's no proof of widespread fraud. At most, there are isolated incidents by both Democrats and Republicans. Elections are not rigged. And even if the statement of Mr. Ginsburg is not good enough for you, here is what the Trump administration's own Voting Integrity Commission reported. According to an analysis of administration documents by the Associated Press, Trump's commission uncovered, quote, no evidence to support claims of widespread voter fraud, end quote, and they disbanded in 2018. Even a Republican Senate, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell tamped down current concerns about mail-in ballots last month, saying, and I quote, many parts of our country vote by mail. Oregon, Washington, and Colorado have voted by mail for years, end of quote. And yet, we have a president today who calls mail-in ballots a hoax and a scam. Trump's strategy to delegitimize this election and to stay in office if he loses is not complicated. Finding himself behind in many polls, he is attempting massive voter suppression. He and his Republican colleagues are doing everything they can to make it harder and harder for people to vote. In addition, he is sowing the seeds of chaos, confusion, and conspiracy theories by casting doubt on the integrity of this election And if he loses, justifying why he should remain in office. In an interview with Chris Wallace on Fox News, Trump refused to say that he would leave office if he lost. Asked to give a direct answer on whether he would accept the election results, Trump refused. He said, quote, I have to see, no, I'm not going to just say yes. I'm not gonna say no, and I didn't last time either, end of quote. That's pretty much what he said yesterday. In the middle of a pandemic, Donald Trump made clear that he wants to defund the Postal Service in order to limit the use of mail-in ballots. In an interview on August 13th, discussing a possible deal for a relief package that would have funded the United States Postal Service, Trump let the cat out of the bag by admitting that, quote, if we don't make a deal, that means they don't get the money. That means they can't have universal mail-in voting. They just can't have it, end of quote. In other words, what Donald Trump is saying to tens of millions of Americans is that at a time when over 200,000 of our people have already died from the coronavirus, you have a choice. You can either risk your health or even your life by walking into a voting booth or you can't vote. How outrageous, how disgraceful is that? Amazingly, at the very same time, Trump is making completely baseless allegations about voter fraud. Last month, he urged the supporters in North Carolina to try voting twice, which among other things is a felony. In order to advance his plan for mass voter suppression, the Trump campaign filed a lawsuit in Nevada which fortunately was dismissed, challenging the state's mail-in voting laws. In July, Trump used false claims of voter fraud to propose to propose delaying this year's election, which he obviously does not have the power to do. <clears throat> this was so outrageous that Stephen Calabresi, the co-founder of the Conservative Federalist Society wrote that it was, quote, grounds for the president's immediate impeachment, again, by the House of Representatives, and his removal from office by the Senate, end of quote. Last week, Trump told his supporters at a rally in Nevada that he, quote, was entitled, end quote, to serve a third term, which is obviously a violation of the Constitution's 22nd Amendment. On Saturday, Trump suggested to his supporters in North Carolina that he might sign an executive order. To prevent Joe Biden from becoming president. Trump has also urged his supporters to become, quote, poll watchers. But what he is really saying is that he wants his supporters, some of whom are members of armed militias, to intimidate voters. And we're already seeing this in Virginia, where early voters were confronted by Trump supporters, and election officials in Fairfax County said that some voters, And polling staff felt intimidated on and on and on it goes every day over and over again trump is making it harder for the american people to participate in the political process and is attempting to delegitimize the outcome of this election so that if he loses he can remain in office the concerns that i am raising today are not just mine alone and I'm not just concerned shared by progressives with Democrats. Miles Taylor, a lifelong Republican who previously served as chief of staff inside the Trump administration's Department of Homeland Security, warned that there is nothing that Trump will not do or say to defeat Biden. And this is what he said, and I quote, put nothing past Donald Trump, Taylor told the AP. He will do anything to win. If that means climbing over other people, climbing over his own people, or climbing over U.S. law, he will do it. People are right to be concerned, end of quote. Well, I agree with Mr. Taylor. I am concerned, and I am very concerned. Last week, my former Senate colleague, Dan Coats, Trump's own former director of national intelligence, published a piece in the New York Times calling for a high-level bipartisan and nonpartisan commission to oversee the election to reassure all Americans that has been carried out fairly. Coates wrote, and I quote, the most urgent task American leaders face is to ensure that the election results are accepted as legitimate. Electoral legitimacy is the essential linchpin of our entire political culture. We should see the challenge clearly in advance and take immediate action to respond." End of quote, that's Dan Coats, former Intelligence Director of Donald Trump. I couldn't agree more. I strongly second Director Coats' call for this election commission. Last week as well, Democratic Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and I sent a letter to Senator McConnell urging him to hold hearings on the issue of election and post-election security. Senator Schumer and I stated, quote, we would like to hear from the most knowledgeable people in the country as to how we can do everything possible to make sure that the election and the period afterward is secure and peaceful, end of quote. Majority Leader McConnell, please respond to that letter. Please establish that bipartisan committee. And today I call on every elected official in America, whether they be Republican, Democrat, or Independent, to vigorously oppose voter suppression and voter intimidation, to make sure that every vote is counted and that no one is declared the winner until those votes are counted. And to my Republican colleagues in the Congress, please do not continue to tell the American people how much you love America if at this critical moment, You are not prepared to stand up to defend American democracy and our way of life. Stop the hypocrisy. Now, with or without Donald Trump, this election is unique in American history because it is taking place during a pandemic and a public health crisis. As a result, states all over America are taking the appropriate steps to ensure more Americans can safely vote by mail in their own homes instead of risking their health or their lives to vote in person. The result is that this election will see by far the largest number of mail-in ballots ever. And let's be clear, despite what Donald Trump says, voting by mail is not a new or dangerous idea. Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Washington, and Utah conduct their elections almost entirely by mail. California, Nevada, and New Jersey District of Columbia, my own state of Vermont, have pledged to mail ballots to all registered voters for the upcoming election. And many other states are making it easier, for obvious reasons, to vote by mail. Trump himself, as well as members of his administration, have repeatedly voted by mail. Members of the United States military have regularly voted by mail since the 1800s. Given the significant increase in in mail-in ballots, why, you might ask, are Trump and his allies trying to attack the integrity of our vote-by-mail system? And the answer is pretty simple. A number of studies have shown that, for whatever reasons, Republicans are more likely to vote in person, while Democrats are more likely to use mail-in ballots. In fact, one poll found that only about a quarter of Biden supporters would vote in person on election day, while some two thirds of Trump voters plan to vote in person. In other words, if Trump can undermine people's confidence in the validity of votes cast by mail, he will be calling into questions the validity of votes that may overwhelmingly support Joe Biden. Let us consider the following scenario, a scenario which I hope very much never takes place. On election night, Trump is ahead in many battleground states based on the votes of those who voted in person on election day. All across the television screens, people see Trump ahead before they turn in for the night. But as more and more mail-in ballots are counted, Trump's lead falls. Trump then announces with no proof that there has been massive mail-in ballot fraud, and that these votes should not be counted, and that he has won the election. In other words, Trump may well announce that he has won the election before all of the votes are counted, and that large numbers of mail-in ballots should be discarded. Furthermore, in states where Republicans control the legislature, it is possible that the election results will be ignored because of false accusations of voter fraud, and that the legislature itself will use its power to appoint electors pledged to vote for Trump, overriding the will of the people. And in the midst of all of this, with the death of Justice Ginsburg, Trump is attempting to push through a Supreme Court justice who may very well cast a vote in a case that will determine the outcome of this election. He is doing that at a time when early voting has already begun and millions of ballots will have already been cast. In this unprecedented moment, what can we as a people do in the struggle to preserve American democracy? First, it is absolutely imperative that we have by far the largest voter turnout in American history and that people vote as early as possible. As someone who is strongly supporting Joe Biden, let's be clear, a landslide victory for Biden will make it virtually impossible for Trump to deny the results and is our best means for defending democracy. Second. With the pandemic and a massive increase in mail-in voting, state legislatures must take immediate action now, now, to allow mail-in votes to be counted before election day, as they come in. In fact, 32 states allow for the counting or processing of absentee ballots, verifying signatures, for example, before election day. All states should do the same. The faster all ballots are counted, the less window there is for chaos and conspiracy theories. Third, the news media needs to prepare the American people to understand there is no longer a single election day and that it is very possible that we may not know the results on November 3rd. Fourth, social media companies must finally get their act together and stop people from using their tools to spread disinformation and to threaten and harass election officials. Fifth in the Congress and in state legislatures, hearings must be held as soon as possible to explain to the public how the election day process and the days that follow will be handled. As we count every vote and prevent voter intimidation, everything possible must be done to prevent chaos, disinformation, and yes, even violence. Lastly, and most importantly, The American people, no matter what their political view, must make it clear that American democracy will not be destroyed. Our country, from its inception and through the sacrifices of millions, has been a model to the world with regard to representative government. In 1863, in the midst of the terrible Civil War, Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg stated, that this government, quote, of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. That was true then. That is true today. Regardless of what Donald Trump wants, the American people will preserve democracy in our country. Thank you all very much.
0: Thus ends the Bernie Sanders segment of today's episode, and now, as promised, I have one regular voicemail for you, and uh, as promised, I have an announcement about the audio-voiced versions of messages that people have written into me. I announced those in the previous episode, and I called them e-voicemails. It's a, a portmanteau of email and voicemail, and I didn't even like it as I said it. It was just the first idea I came up with. So we, we were, you know, kicking around other ideas. Amanda came up with one that I, I really liked, just switched it around. Instead of e-voicemail, she went with voice email. But then when you say it fast, it's voice email. So it's like mail, but voicey. And so I liked that for a few hours. And then I think came to me in the shower or something. And I have settled on voiced mails. So we have our voicemails. And our voiced mails with a D in the middle. And if you're interested, in addition to just sending me an email and me being able to convert it, you can now go to bestoftheleft.com slash voiced mails and hear the voices that I have available. So you can tell me which voice would you like me to apply to your email. So anyway, first a voicemail, and then I have our first voluntary voiced mail for you.
2: Hey Jay, it's Craig from Ohio. It's been a while, so I thought I would weigh in on the question of the uh, a new kind of myth that could motivate and unite the left. And I, for I guess about 25 years since I've been paying close attention to politics, have believed that what that myth should be is what I call the progressive myth. And I think it's something that is understandable if you just sort of think about the way Bernie Sanders presents it, everyone for everyone, you know, would you fight for your neighbor? Everyone's in it together. We need, we leave no one behind. Progress is for everyone, not just for individuals or various groups. That's like I said, it, it, everyone's in it together. So that's the progressive ideal, and I, for a long time, thought that that was where we were moving. I think it's the only possible way for humanity as a whole to actually advance to whatever it is we're evolving into. And it's also why I've sort of been distressed over the past, I don't know, several years, five, ten years, about identity and struggles between groups taking a more prominent role in our politics, Not because I have any objection to the complaints of women, minorities, immigrants. I think they're all valid, and I think that they need to be called out. But the problem is, it seems to uh, divide us into factions, which is against the progressive myth, as I conceive of it. So looking toward the future, for, again, the longest time, I thought that problems like climate change and inequality would naturally bring into existence this progressive ideal and everybody would start to see, oh, you know, the progressive myth, it makes sense to replace the old capitalist or market myth, because people would recognize the only way to survive altogether, especially in an environmental situation like the one we're experiencing now with climate change would be to work together. And again, everyone is in it together and no one is left behind. But lately, I guess since about 2016, that was a, that was a real wake up year for me with the election and everything that, that occurred. And I, I've gotten the sense that a lot of progressives or people on the left or however they identify themselves, socialists, whatever, have adopted this Kind of skepticism that nothing matters; it's never going to happen. We're you know we're always going to lose. The progressive ideals of everyone's in it together is is pie in the sky, fantasy. And I've heard that, and I think that was also embodied in one of your recent callers, who, who said, "I've been seeing this kind of racism for years, and it's never going to change. Even if Bernie Sanders got into office and and gave free college to everybody, it would only apply to white people or the people that are at the top of the heap." And I just think that. Even though I understand that impulse, even though I might agree that the situation looks pretty dire, I don't see any alternative to maintaining a striving for that progressive ideal. So the only thing that we can do is constantly strive for this sense of unity and everyone being um, in it together and everyone moving forward together. So I think that's enough. I'm going to now go and call my senators once again to leave a message, because they never answer their phones anymore, about what they should do to block McConnell's attempt to install right-wing Supreme Court justice. That's the kind of example of what I mean we should all be doing and not lose sight of the fact that it helps even though we may despair that ultimately we will win in the long run. Hope that helps. Talk to you later. Bye.
3: Hey Jay, it's Jonathan from Florida, previously from San Diego. I had some thoughts on the speaker from Facebook, who previously worked with extremist cells with regards to polarization. I'm not even sure if it's necessarily just the algorithm's fault. The nature of the internet itself is that it makes it easier to interact with people who are more likely to share your beliefs and so you're not forced to tolerate people who you don't agree with. Unlike, say, in physical life, where you don't have quite as much say over who you end up interacting with on a daily basis. Additionally, I think this might be a situation where the individual good and societal good are at a bit of a conflict, while it would be better in general if people were less polarized as there would be less hostility in the world. For this to happen, different ideologies must mingle. And I know that I don't personally want to be in a space and have to listen to people spouting ideas which if not morally repulsive in and of themselves, certainly lead to consequences that are morally repulsive. Especially when those people either discount the consequences of their actions or think that the actions results have no bearing on the morality of an action. For example taking away healthcare from those who can't afford it, or telling me I should have never been allowed to marry my husband. I feel like we progressives get battered enough by the half measures and gaslighting from the neoliberals that it's exhausting. But we're forced to share a space with them because there's nowhere else for us to go. And
0: in addition to his substantive message, Jonathan also, in a separate comment, just uh,
3: described his feelings about the whole new system. I like the new format of including bonus clips directly into the show as it enables us to have a better context around the episode. I do hope this does not mean that bonus shows are going away, however, as I do rather enjoy hearing your discussion, both alone and with Amanda and some of the -the behind-the-scenes information as well. Also I think that doing the voices is a great idea. Sure, it misses some of the mannerisms and inflections that a person might have, but I certainly empathize with not feeling the most comfortable calling into the show. I feel like I've bungled the two times I've called in by not being able to express what I wanted to say quite as clearly as I'd intended. I always get pretty nervous calling in, and hate talking on the phone. So, two quick
0: comments in response to Jonathan's message. Uh, The first is uh, not to worry for members. I am not doing away with the more conversational aspects of bonus episodes. Those are just going to come out as separate bonus episodes, whereas the clips, I think it makes more sense for exactly the reason Jonathan pointed out, that it just makes more sense to be as part of the topical full episode. And then the, the benefit for me, really, is that it's a lot easier. It just takes less time to make a bonus episode that's purely conversational rather than a combination of conversation and clips. So it's a win-win all around. Secondly, I just want to highlight that I, I love that Jonathan is not only volunteering as as our first uh, voiced mailer, but is also pointing out that he's called in the past. He didn't have... You know, a huge problem. He said he didn't like talking on the phone that much, but he overcame that to call in. But likes this more. So I just want to put that out for everyone as as a a destigmatizing aspect of this. They're like, yeah, this is a little weird. It's a little new. We're we're experimenting with something, but don't feel uh, self conscious about it because even people who have called before say, yeah, you know, calling, it's not that great. I, you know, I I feel like I messed it up when I did. And if you come away with that feeling, which I, I think maybe a lot of people do, then it discourages them from doing it again. Whereas being able to write out your thoughts is a lot easier, more straightforward. You can make sure to say what you mean. So now back to substance, the bonus clip I have for you I'm going to play because it so perfectly follows on from Jonathan's substantive point about the nature of the Internet. And this needs no introduction other than that. This is from speak out with Tim Wise. And uh, and it says everything that needs to be said.
4: Donald Trump clearly doesn't care about people's feelings. All of those folks, sociopaths, antisocial personality folks, serial killers, murderers, Donald Trump, terrorists, uh, all of them Sort of don't care about other people's feelings. They view human interaction as purely transactional. What's in it for them? They don't give a shit about the way it feels for other people. If you want to be like them, I mean, okay, but just acknowledge that's what you're doing. It's incredibly monstrous. You know who does care about people's feelings? Normal, decent people care about other people's feelings. Well-adjusted, emotionally mature people do care about other people's feelings because think about what it would mean in action i mean surely to god we know right that that feelings ought to matter because if they didn't i mean imagine for instance you you went to your doctor for your annual checkup and let's say that you're you know significantly overweight and overweight to an extent that is clearly maybe not healthy for you now your doctor needs to tell you this there's there's no question right that the fact of your obesity or the fact of your weight situation is, is potentially really dangerous and any good clinician is going to want to make sure you understand that. But a truly good clinician is not going to sit you down and go, listen, fat ass, you're a fat ass and you need to lose whatever, a hundred pounds or 50 pounds, whatever it is, right? A good clinician is going to say, you know, I'm really worried about your weight and we need to figure out a plan, right? To help get that under control. What do you think? What do you think we can do? What are you willing to do? Here's what I think you ought to do. You know, what are you willing to commit to, right? There are ways to go about it that show compassion, which by definition means that doctor cares about your feelings. If if it's just the facts that matter, then that doctor can just walk in and say, you're a fat ass, drop a hundred pounds, I'll see you in a year. And, and and if a doctor does that, that doctor is an asshole. Right, Because we know, and not only an asshole, they're not going to be very effective because we know that the feelings that people have about certain facts are going to affect their willingness to take action on them. So when you shame people for their weight, it generally speaking does not get them in shape. it does not make them drop the weight. It's not like people that are that are fat don't know that they're overweight, and it's like you told them and you're like, "Oh my God, I looked in the mirror and saw a skinny person, okay, well, now that you call me fat, let me you know, let me go jog." That doesn't. that's not real. People don't respond on the basis of shame, even if the thing that you shared with them that shamed them was factual because emotions are part of the picture. And if you want people, if you're a doctor and you want your patient to lose that 50 pounds or that 100 pounds, you got to work with them. You got to show compassion and you got to work with them around a plan. You can't just give them the fact of their heaviness, right? The fact of their weight problem. Or if you have like a, a 14-year-old kid who's got acne, right? A lot of kids have acne. I had, I had really bad acne for about a year, year and a half when I was a teenager, right before I finished high school. Uh, now you could come up to a kid with bad acne and go, God, you've got really bad acne. Well, that would be a fact. And I guess if you're like a real asshole or apparently a conservative, you would say to yourself, well, facts don't care about your feelings. You need to get some Claracel or whatever the hell the kids are using nowadays, right? The, the proactive or whatever it is. Um, yeah, you know, if you got bad acne, it'd be probably good to take care of that. Uh, it certainly was helpful for me to go and, and get medicine for that and treatment for that. Uh, but, but to just share the fact without some kind of plan of action just sort of makes you an asshole, right? You have to care about the feelings of the person that you're going to tell a fact to. And if you don't, you're just being this sort of misanthropic, You're just sort of being a dick like that's that's the only way that I can think to to put it. Let me give you a political example so I could say, for instance, the following thing. And this is a fact. It is a fact that the violent crime rate is higher among black folks in the United States than it is among white folks. It's about two point six to one higher crime rate. Among black folks and among white folks. And there are lots of reasons for this, and none of them have to do with race. They have to do with the correlation that has been observed. And I think 32 countries last time I counted where they have found a correlation between concentrated poverty and violent crime, where they have found a correlation between urbanicity. Just having big cities alone uh, explains about 50% of the difference in America between white and black crime, for instance, crowded housing, uh, you know, sort of boarded up infrastructure, lots of, lots of socioeconomic conditions that are directly correlated. Related with violent crime rates and which explain, you know, the differences between white and black crime. So I'm not saying when I say black crime rates are higher anything negative about black people per se or anything positive about white people per se. But let's just think about that fact in a vacuum. If all I do is share that fact, think about how that might be heard by certain people, both white and black. I should point out. Uh, Does it matter how I say it? Because see, I think it does. Because black folks understandably are wary of people criticizing their communities, especially white folks making comments that could be seen as critical about their communities. And why? Because history is a thing that has happened, right? And so black folks, when they hear that, when they hear that fact thrown around, if I'm black, I can't take for granted that you are operating in good faith when you share that fact. I can't assume that you're sharing that fact for some neutral academic purpose or that you're sharing that fact for some salutary beneficial purpose. I have to assume there's a chance that you could be sharing that fact to demean my people and my community or to justify the mistreatment of people in my community because it could be used for that purpose, right? And so if, if I hear a white person say that, for instance, could be on the internet or could be, you know, in a classroom, I have every right to feel some kind of way about that because my life is at stake or the lives of other people in my community might be at stake. So to say that you don't care about how I feel about the articulation of that fact is to say that you don't care about me. And once again, that makes you an asshole. So think about that statement that that the violent crime rate is higher in black communities than white communities. A criminologist might note that and they might offer it in a particular context. I just said it because it's a fact, but I'm offering a very particular context and background information to explain the facts so that you know what my intentionality as a criminologist might offer it, uh, a policymaker might offer it as a way to say, oh, you know, therefore we need to have targeted jobs programs, educational and or mentoring programs in urban areas so as to deal with that problem. Or we need to do greater lead abatement because we know one of the highly correlated factors with criminal offending is lead poisoning. And we know that lead poisoning far more common in urban areas, low-income urban areas, both because of lead paint that is still in many buildings in such places, but also because of the sedimentation of lead from old leaded gasoline. Even though leaded gasoline has been out of commission since the early 70s, some of the lead particles from when lead was in gasoline settled in the soil uh, in the 1960s and 1970s and continued to affect criminal offending rates and cognitive development educational attainment rates well into the mid-1990s, which by the way, is when the crime spike really happened, was in the late 70s and throughout the 80s into the early 90s. So there's been some research which has found that crime spike was tied to lead poisoning. And one of the reasons that we've seen crime decline by about 50% in black communities since the early 90s is because that lead has finally begun to dissipate Right. Which is obviously good news. But but what does that show you? Right. It shows you that the context within which I'm offering the fact very definitely matters. A criminologist might say it for academic reasons. A policymaker might say it for reasons of coming up with good anti-crime policy. But a Nazi might also say it. For very different reasons, right? A racist of some type might say it to justify racial profiling, to justify mass incarceration, to justify white people being afraid of black people, to justify the creation of so-called white ethno-states and the exclusion of black people entirely, to justify segregation. So the same fact can be used for different purposes, and that means feelings matter, because if I want my intentions to be clear, so that we can address whatever fact it is that I'm sharing, I need to be self-aware and I need to be other-aware enough to consider the tone of what it is I'm saying, the way I'm saying it, to consider the other comments or the prefacing comments that I might need to make in order to make my comments make sense and not be misperceived. Again, if I want to be an effective communicator of the intention behind my facts and not just injure you, which is to say, if I want to be not an asshole, I should care about your feelings and the way that I'm sharing that particular information. You know, on a practical level, what I think has made this such an important issue, and uh, you know, I hope that folks don't feel I've spent too much time on it, but it seems to me that part of the reason we're in this space where we've got people saying things like facts don't care about your feelings and and just sort of being assholes without regard to for other people's emotional response or demanding the right to be assholes, even within this whole political correctness debate, this idea that, you know, I've got a right to say whatever it is I want. And if you don't like it or if you're offended by it too bad, it's like, yeah, okay, that's an interesting rights conversation to have. That's an interesting conversation about your liberties, I suppose. We can have that discussion. But what does it say That you feel the need to say certain things. Just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean that it's okay to do it, right? And if you do it, it sort of makes you an asshole. And it's almost as if what the right is saying is, no, 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 my right to offend you is paramount. And if you get offended, you're clearly weak. It's your problem. I should have absolute freedom to say what I want, and if you respond emotionally to it, it's because there's something wrong with you. I feel like this is worse now precisely because of the age in which we live, uh, and particularly the way in which we live so much of our lives online. There's a certain empathic collapse That I feel is happening and that the right with this mantra is fostering as a result of modern culture because our technology makes it so easy to dissipate empathy and to ramp up the cruelty because you don't have to see the effect. Right? It's easy to say, I don't care about your feelings when I don't have to actually even see your feelings most of the time. So I control you, you know, a part of trolling behavior, there's a lot of research on that, which suggests that online trolling, people that do that, 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 You know, say things deliberately to get a rise out of people or to hurt people or to cause an emotional response. Um, call people names, just say really mean, foul shit, not wanting to engage in real dialogue, but just, just looking to provoke the people who, who, who do that score very highly on various indicia of sadism and antisocial personality tendencies. And it seems to me that that is made easier by a culture in which I can say all kinds of really foul shit and I don't really have to look you in the eye, right? Like back in the day, if I wanted to say really mean, shit to you, I would have to say it to your face and I would see whatever pain it was that I was causing you. And those mirror neurons that I talked about earlier would probably cause me to at least feel like, oh shit, maybe I did something I shouldn't have done, right? Because I see the look on your face or I see you cry. I, I see you get upset. And the mirror neurons that I have reflect back on that and think, oh, that, unless I'm a real sociopath, I mean, unless I'm truly antisocial, right? In which case, I guess I wouldn't care that I hurt you, but most people aren't that, you know, most people aren't deeply antisocial. And when they hurt people, if I see that I hurt you, I feel like shit. If, if I see that I offended you, I, um, I naturally, if I see it face-to-face, I naturally, my, my tendency is to want to apologize, right? But if I do it online, man, if, if I do it on a, on a forum board or if I do it on Twitter or I do it on Facebook, all I have to see is your emotional response in 240 characters or 280 characters, whatever it is. I don't have to actually see the expression on your face. I don't have to feel the response that you're having and there's something about this modern era that makes cruelty so much easier and we need to figure out collectively how we're going to respond to that. I don't I don't have the answer to it, but what I do know is that this tendency that the right wing is nurturing to subdivide reason and logic on the one hand from feeling and emotion on the other is just a terrible way to run a society. It is an incredibly dangerous way to order A pluralistic society where we have 335 million or whatever it is people and we got to try to figure out how to make it work. And the idea that we don't have to think about other people's feelings, that all we have to do is just become these hard-headed automatons putting aside whether – our rationality and logic is really rational or logical at all. Just the fact that we would dichotomize these things, that we would try to divide our humanity in such a way, I just, I don't think that that bodes very well for our future. So I don't have any answers, but I do think it's important to articulate this problem and to suggest that this mantra of the right, that facts don't care about your feelings, though it is a sort of perfect exemplar of what's wrong with America today and particularly what's wrong with right wing thinking. Thinking in, America. Uh, in addition to that, it's incredibly dangerous and we need to spend some real time figuring out how we're going to reattach not only ourselves to one another, but reattach logic and emotion and embrace both of these things because both of them are what make us human. And if we can't remember that, if we can't remember what it is that makes us human, we're not going to be able to come together to figure out how to build a rational, decent and compassionate society for all of us.
0: And with that, we will wrap up today's odd episode. As always, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work on the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in messages to be played as voicemails. mails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can send us a voice memo by email. You can record a message at 202-999-3991, or you can simply email me directly or leave a comment anywhere you can leave comments, and uh, they can be turned into voicemails. Thanks of course to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofeleft.com/slash support. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode,